Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am your host, Steve Bisson. I'm an author and mental health counselor. Are you curious about therapy? Do you feel there is a lot of mystery about therapy? Do you wonder what your therapist is doing and why? The goal of this podcast is to make therapy and psychology accessible to all by using real language and straight-to-the-point discussions. This podcast wants to remind you to take care of your mental health, just like you would your physical health. Therapy should not be intimidating. It should be a great way to better health. I will demystify what happens in counseling, discuss topics related to mental health, and discussions you can have with your therapist. I also want to introduce psychology in everyday life, as I feel most of our lives are enmeshed in psychology. I want to introduce the subtle and not-so-subtle ways psychology plays a factor in our lives. It will be my own mix of thoughts as well as special guests. So join me on this discovery of therapy and psychology. Hi, and welcome to episode 21 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. My name is Steve Biesel. Uh, if you haven't listened to episode 20, I urge you to do so because it's going to be a great precursor to episodes 21, 22, and 23 for the rest of the season, really, on trauma and PTSD. So I hope that you have listened to it. If you haven't, go back, listen to it, and episode 21 will be here anyway. So episode 21 is about crisis work. And I'm meeting with Kara Terrell and Bill Dwinnells, both crisis clinicians that I've worked with in the past. Between all of us, we have about 50 years plus of experience with crisis work. And it was an immense pleasure to set it up. And I'm hoping that the interview goes as well as just any conversations we've ever had in the past. I think we're going to talk about a lot of how it affects the actual crisis clinician, how it affects the clients, the complexities of it and how it can be challenging as well as very rewarding to do this type of work. So here is the interview. Hi, and welcome to episode 21. I'm very excited about this episode because I'm talking about a very serious subject, but at the same time, seeing old friends is always very nice. So I'm sitting here with Kara Terrell and Bill Dwinnells. We've known each other for about 20 years, but you know, maybe the audience doesn't know who you are. So how about we do a quick intro? How about we start with Bill? Hi, my name's Bill Dwinnells. I've been working in crisis and emergency services for about the past 25 years. I have also helped develop software to help programs run emergency services. Uh, that software can be found at 508tech.com. I also have my own uh, private practice. If anyone wanted to get in touch with me that way, that is at buildwinnells.com. Again, that's buildwinnells.com. Looking forward to hearing more about that. And Kara, your turn to introduce yourself. Hi, Steve. And hi, Bill. Thank you for having me on. Well, recently, I just opened up my own practice, Kara P. Terrell Counseling. And I had been in crisis work for probably over... 15 to 16 years. I did elder protective services. So I investigated elderly abuse. And then I worked with both of you doing some psychiatric emergency services. And I did that for a while. And during that time, Bill was actually my supervisor during some of that time. And I still appreciate some of the helpful things that he, you know, supported me with. So that was helpful at that time. And I've gone on to work with quite a few different populations working with the municipalities, like I said, on boarding task force, being a director of youth and family services. I worked at the housing authority. I've worked at several senior centers and I have my master's in counseling and psychology from Leslie. So 
that's kind of where I am now. Oh, welcome, Kara, and can't believe we've known each other for this long. You have a great office, so that's kind of cool. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about the work that you do, Kara. So please let me tell me more about it. Sure. So I think that, like I said, it's probably been over 20 years that I've been in and out of crisis work. And originally, a lot of the work that I did was actually going into homes. So some of the crisis teams are different, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But usually, it's based or has moved towards being based in local ERs. So if someone's experiencing a crisis, if they're feeling like they're going to hurt themselves, hurt someone else, their psychosis, substance abuse issues, they can go to their local ER. But back in the day, we did a lot of homework, meaning that we went into directly into people's home after a call. And when I look back now on that, it's a little concerning because I think at this point, you know, going into a home by myself, you know, was probably not the safest idea. But at the time I was young, I was very brave and I felt like I knew exactly what I was doing and I learned a lot too. And then I ended up at a local emergency service work and I stayed there for about 15 years and I worked there simultaneously when I worked for the town as well. So, you know, it, why it was advantageous to me at the time was it was very flexible work. You know, you could do it at night or on weekends. We were 24-7, you know, there, and there was a varied amount of work you could do there. You know, there's a work that you could do for triaging. You could do the actual evaluations. You could do, you know, facilitating the insurance piece of it, finding beds for people. That was a whole piece of the job too. So I think it was probably the best place to learn something. I would recommend it to anybody starting out in any type of psych work. Well, I definitely know that we've changed how we do crisis work in general. And I know that just to call back to some of my past episodes with uh, Sergeant Jay Ball and how we now even co-respond with police in the house of people. So that way there is more safety. It doesn't guarantee anything, but we've unfortunately seen it in Massachusetts, Illinois, Texas, and everywhere else that there's been unfortunately negative outcomes from going to people's houses. So it's very important to mention that. So I really appreciate that you said that. Even after doing this for like you said, you dated yourself too, right? But when when you really think about it, when you go back to what we used to do, I sit there going, I had a lot of balls at 17 or 23, 2017 years ago that I probably go today. I'm like, I wouldn't do that. So uh, I agree with you. Yeah, Steve. Well, I didn't have any balls at 17. <laughs> I definitely had a lot of guts and I felt very brave going into those homes. And I'm glad, you know, and I think you guys would agree, the experience that it gives you again, is unbelievable and working with different departments, like you said, the police department, the fire department, we work with doctors, nurses, EMTs, you run the gamut and you really, really develop a skill set that's second to none. Well, it's called ovarian fortitude, just for the record, just ovarian fortitude. So I just want to go there. And I can't believe you don't think at 17, I had any balls myself. But anyway, that's another story for a different day. Bill, how about you tell me a little more about your history with the crisis work? For the most part, I got in crisis work right out of grad school. I had uh, I had also been working as a part-time firefighter EMT, so I was kind of familiar with crisis work in general, and I really wanted to develop some skills to be able to, to work with first responders. That led me to find out about emergency psychiatric work, and I just sort of gravitated towards it because this really is psychology's version of the fire department. And when I got into it, I've 
worked for a number of different emergency service teams. You know, over my career, uh, as I said, I've been the clinician, the supervisor, the director. I've been able to assist multiple police departments in setting up jail diversion programs. I actually have one right now that we're writing the grant for, so they'll be hopefully coming online soon. And, you know, I've just really worked at being the person who can walk into chaos and restore some sort of order, which I think is a, you know, a skill that all of us develop doing crisis work. You know, that's what I really like about it. And as I said, I've, I've worked my way up and moved around to different teams that needed my help and did what I could. Additionally, now I've, you know, I've kind of slowed down a little bit more as, as you talked about, you know, things have changed. I'm not quite as, uh, not quite as spry as I used to be. So I've, I've slowed things down a little bit and then got into a private practice where I still work with first responders. And uh, I've even worked with some former crisis workers, you know, helping them deal with whatever they have to deal with. So it's been interesting. I do remember a time where we'd go into the emergency rooms and there was beds just about everywhere. And with time, I think that we've changed and they put it in certain areas. And just for the record, you're, you forgot an important time because we worked all together at the same place. You used to be the director of respite on the overnight. Uh, <laughs> you, used, you used to be able to do that. And if you remember those days, we, we were based out of Massachusetts. And uh, I think we all worked together from what, like in the, like the early 2000s. So I don't want to date us too much, but I want to say like in 2002, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. And Steve, just to add to that, the craziness of, and I use that loosely, of course, the environment was challenging. You know, we were all in one room. And like you said, in the other room were people in respite care, which means that they were basically (laughs) temporarily living in our office in another room while we were answering crisis calls 24-7. Again, that's a very unusual setup. And I think it made for, you know, at times stressful environment, environment, But also, you know, I think it's one of those things you do when you're young and you do get that experience so that you can use it in your future work. But we also had a lot of fun. You know, I think there was a camaraderie there. And I think we all promoted each other and helped each other. And not only going into the ERs, the home visits, we'd go with the police. We'd go into the prisons sometimes or the jails. You specifically worked closely with the jail diversion program. And we would work in group homes. So we saw so many different types of people from zero to a hundred. I mean, we saw children, we saw young adults, we saw teenagers, we saw elderly, we saw everybody in their crisis state. And it it was tough at times. And I wonder, you know, I'll put it back on you guys. I look back and think, you know, some of our coping skills had to be pretty stellar because, you know, we were dealing with trauma on a daily basis, deaths, violence. There's a lot of, and crisis in itself is a high pressured environment. So I would say to you guys, I mean, I, a lot of times we'd use dark humor, you know, we'd make jokes and, you know, it's just kind of this environment where you couldn't really, you had, had to have tight boundaries and you had to have, be pretty professional about things, but we also could laugh about ourselves too. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think that dark humor is essential for our work as I think that it is for first responders. I always considered us first responders and a half, if that makes any sense. But the one lesson I learned is that mental health does not discriminate. 
one of the things that I remember is that mental health, whether whatever, whatever your so, your uh, social economic status, your racial status, sexual orientation, what have you, I, it, it doesn't discriminate. And it goes from the youngest person I've ever seen was three years old. And the oldest I ever saw was, I can't remember, I want to say that they were in their mid-90s. But you know what I've really learned is that it doesn't discriminate whatsoever. And that was a lesson that I remember really finding helpful in regards to the work that we do. And I'll turn to you guys. Maybe you can help me out. What are your thoughts about mental health and how it does not discriminate and how it affects so many people in the work that we do? I completely agree with you. You know, I mean, it certainly does show how, you know, mental health doesn't have any boundaries when it comes to that. And, you know, to play off uh, what both you and Kara had said, the, the skill set that you develop as a crisis clinician, you have to develop the ability to interact with all of those people. You know, the way I interact with a three-year-old is different than the way I interact with a 93-year-old, which may be different than how I would interact with somebody who's Asian versus Italian. You know, so you, you end up learning how to interact with people and build rapport in a very short period of time with people of extremely diverse uh, ethnic uh, and racial backgrounds. And in some cases too, I know all three of us have had this experience, people with different developmental disabilities, you know, and how to interact with them, you know, because it is all slightly different. It's not one approach fits all. You have to be able to adapt and many times adapt on the fly to what the situation is. You know, 15 minutes ago, I may have been talking to a five-year-old. Now I have somebody who's completely opposite end of the spectrum. You know, I think in that, you end up developing some really good skills that just makes you a much better, well-rounded therapist. And a better human being for doing the work that we do. I mean, yeah, agreed. we worked with a lot of different people uh, with different types of issues. And one of the things that I remember is they wanted relief and, you know, we learn how to meet people where they're at and how they can really get some support from us, despite not bringing the full relief that they probably look for. But it was so important to play that role in what we've done in the emergency room and what you continue to do, obviously, you, Bill, uh, in the emergency rooms at this time. Yeah, Steve. I, I could add to that because when I, when Bill was talking about the different types of people you would encounter, and again, in their darkest days too, and in a high-stress environment, which is the ER, which is nonstop, almost everywhere you go. And we were pressured to do things in a time-sensitive way too. You know, We always had to be mindful that a client had to be seen at a certain time. There are regulations that dictate that we see them within a certain amount of time. They can't be at the ER for longer than they can't be there too long until they see somebody. So there's there's regulations that we had to go by. We also, you know, when I'm thinking about it, Bill was sometimes people they didn't speak English, or we encountered someone like you said with developmental disabilities, or someone who was deaf, or we had to use an interpreter or a sign language interpreter, and we'd wait. Yeah, we would wait hours sometimes waiting for the interpreter, and we had to fill out. 12 page evaluations. And I know, thank God, Bill has come to the rescue for that. And I don't think anybody other than someone who sat there for uh, for hours filling it out 
would have that sense of, of why it's important that it's easy, accessible. And I know they do everything on the computer now, <laughs> but back in the day, we'd have to write everything out. And we had to make sure we checked in with the doctor, the nurse, collaterals. We had to make contact calls and then check on insurance, facilitate approval through insurance, which is always a nightmare, and then call to the different hospitals, like you said, in the entire state to see if there's a bed for you know, a certain aged person who presented with these certain behaviors. We also dealt with people who had substance use dis- disorders and times if they were intoxicated when they came in or they had had a high BAL or they had to wait for their talk screen, that was an added issue to look at. Blood alcohol level. Thank you. Everything in crisis work is an acronym. Everything. Absolutely. And I agree. Just a reminder, we're listening to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am Steve Biso. I'm sitting here with Kara Terrell. And Bill Dwinnells, we're talking about crisis work. And yes, you're talking about all the acronyms, IOP and CBAT and PH. And, you know, those are all acronyms that we needed to know. Intensive outpatient, partial hospitals, children, behavioral programs. But finding the right placement and getting approved was such a hard process. Sometimes it was very daunting to get everything that we needed. And what would happen is that we'd have to tell people, like, until we get the beds, you will end up waiting in the ER and we didn't have a time frame, right? And even though it was difficult for us, we were professionals, we were trying to be the best we could in regards to letting them know what was going on. We really didn't know how long it would take. And to me, that was a very hard part because you never had a real answer. And then, you know, people again, looking for relief, looking for what, how to feel better is what was going on. So, you know, what I want to turn to you guys and ask you is what do you think was the hardest part for you in regards to those moments and how to deal with them? Because it it happened very often. It's not like it happened once or twice. I would say that it happened weekly. And I think about Saturday nights, I think about Friday nights and sometimes even Mondays where we would end up having that. So what was the hardest part for you guys? In my experience, it's always been tough to have somebody who's in the middle of a crisis and telling them they have to wait. And sometimes you have to tell them that they have to wait really indefinitely. There are multiple factors that, you know, go into why the wait. I mean, Kara did a fantastic job kind of running down the whole list of everything that we have to do from checking the insurance, talking to the doctor, talking to family, talking to everybody. But I think, you know, the one thing that she forgot to say that can complicate all of this is that's assuming nobody disagrees with us. You know, we've had that. Sometimes we've had the doctor disagree with us or the insurance company or the family or whoever. Any Anywhere along the line, there could be a disagreement and that slows everything down. Whether they are young, old, hard of hearing or blind or speak a different language, the option for us to not serve them is not there. And I think that's one of the other things that you learn in crisis work is that failure to a certain extent is not an option. We have to find a way to serve these people. Unfortunately, sometimes that does mean long waits. And sometimes it means telling folks things they don't necessarily want to hear. But the long waits can um, you know, impact people. I've certainly had people who had to wait days. Some people have had to wait weeks in an ER you know, while trying to find them a suitable either a suitable placement 
or a suitable alternative to placement. Because we do that too. We always, you know, when I'm working with my clinicians and my staff, I tell them to go in with plans A, B, and C to see what we can have happen. And, you know, the clients and their families become very frustrated over the waiting. They don't understand because, you know, they're not with us. We know what's happening because we're working on it. I think it's important for for clinicians to keep that in mind that we know what's going on. So it's not as frustrating to us, still frustrating, but not as frustrating to the family who feels like they're not being told anything. We just need to be mindful of that. Yeah. I think I agree with Bill that some of the issues that come up is someone, usually people weren't, they were at first happy to see us because they thought that, you know, they'd get an answer or have some movement. But when you've been sitting like, Bill said for days in the ER and you know one of us comes on as a new person on the next shift we have to take over for whatever the whatever has happened you know I did for years the Sunday shift seven to one so I would you know the call would come in at 6 30 we have someone over at this ER they've been sitting there since Friday night they came in intoxicated and and making statements that they might hurt themselves We've done a bed search every shift. We, you now have to go in and figure something out. And just like we had regulations that we couldn't keep people just sitting at the ER with ser- without services, we also can't just let people leave if they've made statements of safety issues. And that is, you know, a pretty big responsibility. And and like Bill said, we we do several consults with every client. That was the you know the regulations and the requirements and the policy. But that's a tough responsibility because it always was you sign that evaluation and you put your put your name and your professionalism down and you just try to do the best you can. We all saw like hundreds of clients. And I know that I was there on Sundays with you. I used to be your buddy. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that I realized is that in being in those situations was very frustrating, not only for the clients, but for us. And we would do our best to kind of calm down everyone. And what I mean by that is it was also you know, really affected the hospitals. It affected so many people. You had all the resources that you could find because we created good relationships in the community. We had an agency that had good relationships, but sometimes it was hard to find those beds, especially on the weekends. And finding an inpatient at any time is hard. Yeah, there's a very a serious a lack of resources for people who are who are in need of that level of care. It becomes very problematic to get folks in there. And I think there are multiple factors to that. I mean, one, physically, I just don't think there are enough beds. Two, one thing I do think happens is a lot of people have this magical thinking about what happens when they go to an inpatient psych unit, and they think they're going to go there, they're going to get magically cured. I I can tell you, and the statistics will back me up on that, that very rarely ever happens. What really happens on the inpatient psych unit, and, and believe it or not, I'm not trying to say anything you know negative about them but the patient goes there and is able to stabilize really in an artificial environment they're given meds and they're very and then they become very well adjusted again to an artificial environment not where they live which is what caused them to go into crisis in the first place one of the things we find is probably 80 to 90% of the people who are on inpatient psych units could have just as effectively been treated if not better with community providers who would then show them and instruct them on coping skills to 
work and live within their community that they're going to be returning to as opposed to this, you know, artificial, you know, in some cases, sterile environment of an inpatient unit. It's always been my mission and, you know, my team's mission to work with people in the community, in where they live, uh, how they live, and really embed ourselves in that to get folks to where they need to be so they can function on their own, again, in their own home communities. You know, I think that's one of the things that's very important. One of the things I remember also is that inpatient was the goal for some and especially for some of the clients and the families. But for us, it was always about diversion and keeping them in the community and finding those resources, which is so important for them. And I really appreciate when we would find something in a community versus sending them in inpatient. But I know that that frustrated a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we definitely want to keep people in the community. It is an absolute last resort for a couple of reasons. One, like we said, that there just aren't enough resources. You know, there are also, you know, what I was talking about, you know, in my opinion, uh, better treatment in the community. And it's just changing the mindset. But a lot of people have this mindset of like, oh, I'm sick. I go to the hospital, which is true. However, instead of thinking I'm sick, I should go to the hospital you know, I would like to see the change become, I'm sick, I need some assistance. That may be your hospital, and if it is, we'll find you a hospital bed. But there are many, many steps and many programs prior to hospitalization that can happen and can be just just as, if not more effective than, you know, going to uh, an inpatient unit. And I certainly agree with you that we have to work our community resources and also make sure that the clients know that the inpatient stay is the last resort. This is actually never going to be the first resort. It's really keeping them in the community because inpatient is so artificial, as you stated earlier, Bill. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. So how, you know, I I always try to make sure that they knew that before we got to where we got if it was inpatient. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and I think Bill you know, the original thought was going to the ER was to get medical clearance too, because that was a big part of it. But what's become problematic about it, I think that you're talking about is kind of this backup where, where you have all the psych patients, you know, not even having rooms or, or any privacy or confidentiality because it's so, so full. And that's, that's really a tough, tough place to be for us treaters and for clients. Yeah. You end up having clients sitting in a hallway you know, then as a clinician, I'm called in and I need to do a pretty intense psych evaluation while this poor person is sitting in the hallway. You know, so confidentiality is out the window at that point. You know, we're just doing our best to help the, the person hold on. And I think it's important to mention that it's hard to hold on for them, but it's also, you know, there's a hard part for the therapist and managing these situations, whether they are on the they're not in their room, they're in the hall, or managing how they're feeling and really being able to sit there with them and making sure they're comfortable while we're asking them the very tough questions. It's never easy to be in that position for anyone, but I certainly think that they really, you know, this is something that we need to think about how difficult it is for therapists too, because it's managing how we ask these questions and how do we make sure our clients feel comfortable enough to answer these questions. You know, if you're a male asking a female about sexual abuse or assault, I mean, that is obviously difficult. We obviously have more females 
that work in the uh, crisis world than we do males. But thinking about the comfort level of our clients to make sure that they're able to open up and being able to talk to us is very important. And sometimes, you know, really the biggest challenge that we have. And I think the other piece that's challenging as someone, you know, you talked about coming out, you know, you do have to have a level, you have to have a master's to do this work. So you have to have a high level of education and you have just come out of school or maybe you've been in the workforce, but you go into crisis work and you're limited to a half hour to an hour with the client and has to have to, like you said, build, develop rapport. You know, it's, it's not natural because we, you know, learn so much in school about developing a rapport, supporting a person, providing with them support. So you have to do all those things while you're getting trauma history, substance abuse history, information about a person that's tough to, to talk about and you're doing it in a really short time. So you do have to de- develop those skills very quickly to, you know, do it in a time pressured way as well as recording everything. I got to the point where after 15 years, I could take notes so easily. I only had to put down four words or something. And then I'd go into, we had a little tiny room that we'd all crowd into to do our, our work afterwards. And <laughs> right next to the bathroom <laughs> and write it all down in coherent high-level clinical information presented to a psychiatrist which oftentimes had to be within like a minute or less but with all the pertinent information then present to the insurance company again with high-level information and clinical information and describing the client's diagnosis you we also had to diagnose people. And I think that's an important part to know that this is a very high level expectation and responsibility. And I don't know if we were always given the support that we probably needed. I think one of the important things that you you touched upon, Kara, and I, I don't think it could be emphasized enough, is the education. You know, the folks doing this work, as you said, have a very high level of, level of education. At the same time, none of us were trained to do crisis work. That's not part of the curriculum of a graduate level course, because at a graduate level course, they're talking to you about how you develop rapport over the next two to three weeks. In crisis work, you have about five minutes to develop some sort of working rapport, at least enough to get through to this person. You know, and I mean, let's keep in mind that the the questions you're asking these people aren't, "Hey, how's your day?" It's tell me about your sexual abuse, though I know you only met me 15 minutes ago. You know, so it's how do you get around that? You know, I've always thought there should be some sort of required course at, you know, in graduate level uh, education that goes into crisis work, something more beyond, hey, it's there. In the graduate level courses, they tell you, oh, yeah. You should take two to three weeks before you diagnose somebody. No. In our work, we got to diagnose them about 20 minutes after I made rapport with them, five minutes before that. You know, so I mean, when we say all of this is done on a intense time crunch, this is what we're talking about. And I think this is why ES clinicians, sorry, ES emergency service crisis clinicians, you know, I think this is why we just become laser focused on diagnostics. You know, I mean, I've never met a crisis clinician that couldn't diagnose 
anybody walking into the room, which is why we don't get invited to a lot of parties, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's my party trick. (laughs) But I think that we are thinking about the insurance companies and diagnosing. And, you know, I got to tell you, I hate diagnosing even an outpatient and how it's a disservice to our clients sometimes because we're really working on symptomology and sometimes we're that intense, especially in emergency rooms. That's a lot more important than getting the right diagnosis. But I'm getting off the topic here, finding your way through therapy. This is the podcast you're listening to. I am your host, Steve Bissell, sitting here with Kara Terrell and Bill Duenels, which is two crisis clinicians either in the past or currently, right, Bill? I want to go back to the challenges. And we talked about partly about the challenges that we have as clinicians. But I want to go back to the experience that clinicians go through in general. For me, it was always staying awake on the overnight. But of course, I never fell asleep. You, you all know that. I've always been a very big professional. I have a good story for that if you ever want one, but you need to contact me offline. But what I would like to talk about more is what are the challenges for the clinicians? I think that there's so many things that are a challenge for clinicians that we need to address, and they're not very easy to address, but I think that it's something that we need to do. So going to you guys, what are the challenges for clinicians? Yeah, sure. I think that one of the things I reflect on now, you know, years later after working in crisis is we were there often two shifts in a row. We were there 24-7 sometimes, like you talked about even sleeping there. Well, you were awake, but <laughs> it, was ca- it was called an awake overnight. And basically the expectation is you stay up all night long, basically in a quiet room and, and expect to get through it. And it was tough. But I think that, you know, thinking about the trauma that we would encounter, we talked about, you know, having to talk to people about their horrific, violent trauma history we saw people in, you know, the worst of the worst situations, very sad, sad cases, people in situations that really were not going forward in a positive way. And so we saw those things and just how it impacted us. You know, we were we had to cope in some way, you know, and I think you were going to mention, Steve, that the average is one to three years in crisis. And I think I laugh at that because all of us of our clinicians. And all of us, I think, have exceeded 15 years or more. And Bill, I think you're even longer. I can't believe that. But there's something that draws us to it too. And I think the challenge, you know, the challenge is to take care of yourself as a clinician and be a healthy person while you're encountering major crisis. And, you know, it's also exciting, but it's also exhausting. So you get that real up, you know, you're at a, you're at a high level, you know, energy level very quickly, like we talked about, and you're dealing with the police, you're dealing with the fire department, you're dealing with, you know, if we went out to houses or group homes, it was very high level excitement slash energy. And then all of a sudden like a a crash because then you're, it's over and then you go home, you know? So it's, it's um, tough. And I think we had to do a lot. You know, we had supervision. Bill was my supervisor for a while. Thank you. And we relied on each other, you know, and I said the dark humor, but you guys might you know, talk about something else. And we became very good friends and and colleagues with the nurses and the doctors we worked with. I think they were great support. They called me the closer on Sunday mornings because I'd always find a solution no matter what. And uh, they were very grateful because they'd been taking care of these clients all weekend. So I put it to you guys, you know, 
what do you what do you look back and think about just a little side when i first started working there you know the, the eir has a lot of different smells let's just say and i thought oh i could never eat here that's disgusting it that would make me sick you can smell you know poop you could smell you know someone's puking you within a week i was having like my lunch there right in the middle of the ER with the grossest things going on. Cause we were, you know, there was also medical patients too. So how did you guys cope? I have my answers, but I want to turn to bill uh, before we were recording. He had a great response to this. I just said to drink heavily. I don't actually <laughs> recommend that, but uh, you know, it always gets a chuckle out of people. You know, I, I think one of the things you develop as a crisis clinician is you know, and Kara, I, I, I think you made a reference to it, is uh, compartmentalizing. You know, really being able to compartmentalize. You know, when I'm at work, I'm at work. I'm doing what I need to do, and then when I go home, I try my best to be at home and not be thinking about work. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's the goal, anyways. You know, I can also say that I, you know, personally, I also do a, a lot of mindfulness meditation. You know, I find that helps me relax and sort of reset. Sometimes I even do it in the middle of a shift if I really feel I need it. You know, that that's that's kind of what I do. And I tend to go with Bill here, and I agree with you. I've done meditation, you know, mostly on a daily basis to ground myself, especially do it before bed because I really need that. Exercise, obviously, really helps me. I've done a lot of that stuff. But the problem that I always had was that you can't talk about it. You know, we have HIPAA and that's uh, the Health and Information Privacy Protection Act that we couldn't violate. We can't talk about our cases. My ex-wife is a social worker, but I still couldn't share the stories with her. The way that I reframed it for myself, and sometimes it wasn't the healthiest thing in the world, not only for me, but, you know, possibly costing me some relationships in the long term, but was to use dark humor. But that's a very bad party trick because I think that a lot of people don't really want to hear that stuff. And they don't really, they, you know, I remember getting, you know, saying some very dark humor. I still do to this day and in parties. And I don't get invited for my party tricks because it's not only about, you know, diagnosing someone, but I would say some very dark humor stuff and I would have the look from other people. So really doing some self care really ended up being the healthiest way for me to do it. In like I said, exercise, uh, yoga, meditation, you know, and, and, that, and that's not always easy, especially when you're a new clinician and you're learning how to do all that while working a new job and all that. So I, I, I know that I struggled with doing that on a regular basis. And like I said, friendships got a little uh, strained when I started sharing a little bit too much about my dark humor slash thoughts about different things. Yeah, I think Steve, you reminded me, you know, the self-care is important. And if I was ever to go into crisis again, which it's not likely, I would say, I know, Bill, Bill, would you hire both of us? I would hire both of you right here and now. <laughs> I thought so. I was just going to say, you know, you, you talked about talking about it to other people or keeping it just at work. I mean, I couldn't come home and talk about it to my husband because I almost felt like he's normal or he goes to a normal job and to hear things that I had heard is traumatizing and I wouldn't put that on that other person. So you really can only talk to other people that are kind of in it. And I know that police and fire have that same experience, which can be very 
limiting and, and it makes you feel very isolated. So that that's a tough piece of it. And conversely, as a woman, you guys talked about being a man, you know, encountering women. We were we had to have security every time we go into it. Everybody did, not just just me. But the setup was that we would have security because oftentimes people were coming in. They could be aggressive. They could be violent. They could be intoxicated. We've had, you know, nurses were assaulted while we were there. You know, so you're also thinking about your own safety and that's a tough position to be in. And questionable security sometimes, right? So that was very difficult, whether it's new people who are security, the numbers were low for that. You get a new client, you weren't sure how to deal with that. And it was uncomfortable at times just to ask for support or even look, go in with, you know, sometimes a security when you're going into those program, those rooms. You'd know who could have your back when you went into it, went into a, a room. And oftentimes you had to make sure that, you know, they teach you, you know, originally, you know, some protective qualities where, you know, you don't put your back to the door, you're not in a place where you can't get out, all those things. But we we were in an environment where people had to be searched, but if they weren't searched properly and they still had a weapon on them in the room, then you go in and close the door, you're in stuck in that room and it could be really safe. So, we, you know, I think that we all learned everybody, men and women, learned to either keep the door open, have a talk with the security before you went in. And we'd have to kind of assess the situation very quickly. And again, going into homes where there are guns, are there knives, are there children, are there dogs? You know, we'd have to do those assessments because I've had, I remember times where the police said, you go in first. And I'm thinking, wait a second, don't you have a gun? (laughs) You know, but we'd see those, you know, scary situations. Yeah. And, you, you know, everyone that we saw had stuff going on, right? And sometimes their fight or flight would be kicking in. And whether it was psychosis or dementia, them feeling unsafe, having struggles with withdrawals and all the difficulties that they were having, there was a lot of unpredictability that occurred and made us them feel that way, certainly made us as clinicians feel that way. And certainly you became buddy with the security or the police officer because you never knew what else would be going on. And sometimes even the best searches in the world does not detect everything on the individual. So certainly very difficult for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, um, I can tell you in my own experience, I've been called to scenes to work with folks who, you know, what I was told on my way there turned out to be completely different from when I got there. You know, I've been told that, oh, this person is, you know, losing their mind and they're crazy and they're dangerous. And, you know, I get there and it's like, it's Joe. I know Joe. I've worked with Joe before. Joe is not dangerous. Give me a few minutes to talk to him and I'll see if I can get him to calm down. And sure enough, I was. And, you know, we got to avoid the whole situation and we, Joe got moved on to, you know, whatever level of care it was that he needed at that time. I think what happens is the three of us, you know, and our colleagues and stuff, we understand mental health on a different level than the general public. So the general public just sees someone and terms them crazy without really understanding what that term means. And they also don't understand the implications that they're making. And not that they necessarily have to, but I think because of that, they tend to dramatize a situation you know, much more than it really needs to be. You know, we were able to get there and, you know, in some of these cases, 
we're able to de-escalate everybody, get everyone to calm down, take a nice deep breath, and work it out. Have I been to situations where things went sideways and we had negative outcomes? Sure. But I can say that those situations are fewer and further between than what people probably think of when they think of the job that I do. Yeah, I agree, Bill. And I think we were specifically called in to do that. So whether we had that experience or not, we quickly learned it because de-escalating a situation where, you know, like I said, we had got we go to the local jails sometimes to assess someone. We had to go to homes, group homes, where it was very chaotic and we were the only people that, you know, staff or the ER docs or someone is looking to to kind of calm the situation, assess it quickly, find a solution, and make it happen in an hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's in an hour and sometimes even less because you had a lot of people in the emergency room. Just want to remind you, Joe is not a real person, but I, I have encountered Joe. And it's sometimes helpful to have that relationship. And that's so important in the work that we do. Just a reminder, you're listening to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I'm Steve Bisson. She's Kara Terrell. He's Bill Duenels. We're talking about crisis work and the stuff that we've done in the past. You know, I really think about ourselves as first responders and a half. And, you know, there's no classes for what we've do, done and what, you know, how to handle certain situations. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't present for the class where they talked about how to handle a pandemic. And I certainly wasn't in every, you know, as I, I joke around with, uh, and not joking really, but I talked to my first responders and they say, you know, there's no class to explain what every possible scenario could occur. And it's the same thing for us in the emergency world. And I think it's, the, it's hard to really predict everything that could happen on a crisis team. And there's no possible no way. All right. Well, I think that goes back to the, you know, the building the rapport stuff building the rapport in five minutes, being able to look at the situation. Hopefully, we're given a little bit of information before we get there as the crisis clinician, but being able to walk into this situation and, you know, as you said, Steve, quickly assess what's the best approach for me to use with this person. You know, do I need to take a soft approach or are they not going to respond to that? Do I need to take a little, let's, let's not say harsher, but a little stronger approach with this individual? What do I think they're going to respond to? And being able to quickly switch it up if I pick the wrong one. I think that's a crucial skill. Only being able to go in to the situation with one way of building rapport is going to quickly shorten your career. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with that. I remember lots of times where I thought, oh, this is going to work. I'll try this with someone. And you know, within seconds, I knew that wasn't going to work. So you kind of delve back into your bag of tricks, quote unquote, and just come up with something else. And you, and you try and try because your goal is to de-escalate, support, provide resources, and find a solution. And you stick to that goal no matter what, really. You know, And it, it was oftentimes left just to you because again, staffing was always an issue and we would be the person in duty and that was it. And there wasn't really another option. And I think that's part of the excitement too. I, I wanted to add like the flip side is that although we would see someone maybe repeatedly or we'd see certain presentations that were very similar often, there was always something different about, some, about each case. And I think that's what drew us all in because 
we do love people and we do like interacting with people and we always want to help people. And I think that's important. We absolutely do. And that's why we do it. And it's a difficult job, but we love it. However, you know, one of the things that I've learned throughout all the years of doing this is not everyone can do this job. As we said, you know, there's no class, although, you know, I'm sure Bill can find a job writing these classes for different colleges. So I hope colleges across this country is listening to what we're saying. Bill Duenels is his name. But all seriousness, we make a very quick rapport. We make a quick judgment and we need to make a quick assessment of perhaps what the outcome should be and what we need to do for that client. So sometimes that can be very stressful. That can be tiring. We talked about a little bit of the self-care we need to do. We also talk about, you know, short staff and how things are sometimes with, you know, staying for doubles, staying for an overnight when there's no staffing and going to three different ERs in the same night. How do we last in this field? How do we keep ourselves from burning out or leaving the field at, at, you know, because we can't handle it or how do we keep it so that we can manage it on a daily basis? I think it's really important to know your own limitations. You will not last long at this job if you don't have any personal insight. You know, you need to be able to take some time and think about how things are affecting you or how they may affect you and then work on them. And we all have different ways of working on it. You know, I know, you know, some people like doing meditation, some people like doing yoga, which is meditation, running, exercising, Steve, I think you've done all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, and some of us go to, you know, some of us go to therapy. You know, we have uh, one of the things that I think is nice is we develop, uh, like you said, a camaraderie. We develop colleagues. You know, I can come to these two folks if I have something that I really need to get off my chest, you know, or others too, other people that we've, you know, made connections with. For me, it's really just being mindful for the client so that I can best serve them but being mindful for myself so that I can best serve me to continue best serving them. Yeah, I'd agree. I I really see it as a very high level of professionalism because putting up boundaries, you know, and and people would say, well, I could never do that. Well, probably not. If you, if you went home every night and cried about it and thought about it and agonized about it and thought, you know, I could help them more or there's more to do. And I remember I was, a single person when I started doing crisis, got married and, you know, had two young children at the time. And I think that's when it hit me the hardest when I would see young kids or that struggle that, that was tough to see, you know, that certainly weighed on me and it's a job, but it's an important job. And if we didn't want to help or do the work, there's a lot better paying jobs and, you know, easier jobs to do. But we also loved that work. And I think we were all, and we are, and Bill still is, very good at it. You know, our skill set was flexible enough to interchange with all those different level, you know, different levels of people from the client to the police to the nurses to whoever we were interacting with, our colleagues, and, you know, encountered lots of different situations and be able to deal with it. You know, again, that's, that's a high level of professionalism, I think. And again, it was hard. You know, I wouldn't tell my husband who's in quality assurance or something like that. Nothing with, nothing with people, but like the closer you work with people, you know, that that's a tough, tough thing to do, you know, and I did elder protective services where we investigated elderly abuse. And again, people said, I couldn't believe you could do that. And I thought, well, I probably couldn't do, you know, work for DCF department of 
children and family because that would be challenging to me. You know, it's not that I didn't care. It's that, say, for example, on that Myers-Briggs test, I'm a thinker. So doing the work, I could still separate it from the emotions, but it, but it does wear on you. And I think in the end, I was probably had some burnout from, from doing it for so long. And I think that's an excellent point that you're making, being a, mindful of how, how it affects us and how we are reacting to it. So it's something to keep in mind. And you know, one of the things I remember is knowing how when we trained individuals who came to this environment and wanted to work as a clinician, you'd get to know who's going to last, right? We had clinicians who struggled with making a decision about a client because they didn't want to do the right, the wrong one, and they would consult and they would always like flip flop about that. Or you had people who wanted to take the clients home, or they were over involved, and when there's kids involved and you have your own kids, that also affects you, obviously, like you said, Kara. But I also think that when you're new to that, it's you know I think that having kids while you're in this work is a lot different than when you have kids after. But you always need you always know who's going to last and who won't. Yeah. And sometimes we were called dames. We were verbally abused. We were at risk of being physically abused. I don't know a lot of positions other than, you know, you talked about, you know, the, the frontline workers and teachers. I think they're another um, group that's, that's in a tough situation, but that's not a lot of jobs that you go into your job and get verbally abused or critiqued or told, you know, whatever someone's going to tell you because they're in crisis or they're 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 very unwell or they you know you talked about someone who might be in a psychotic state and those are really concerning and and to to not personalize it and to be concerned about someone and care about them but not take it home and and not be able to let it go so when we started this job one of the things that i've learned is that we had to be very good at learning something almost daily we need to be open to that with time, I think that I've learned more lessons from the crisis team than I did in any other job in this field, frankly. But turning to you guys as we're trying to wrap up here, what is the most important thing you learned that you can use even to this day in your work on a daily basis? One of the lessons I learned very early on in my crisis work was really the power of presence. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was called to a scene where, you know, a woman's house was burning down. And so we got there, the, you know, the firefighters are trying to put out the house. The house was a loss that wasn't going to work, you know, so now they're just kind of keeping it from spreading. So in my younger days, I tried to be, Hey, my name's Bill and I'm here to help you. And this woman who is standing there with her house on fire turns to me and says, shut up. And I said, okay, well, this job's not going well. All right, I'll leave you alone. And she said, no, don't leave. So for the next 15 to 20 minutes, I stood there in total silence with this woman watching her house burn down until her husband arrived. Once he arrived, she turned you know, and fell into his arms turned to me and said, thank you, and then walked off with her husband. And that's where I learned that just the fact that, you know, I, my colleagues, you know, other ES clinicians are willing to show up during these darkest days, these, these tough times that people are going through, just by virtue of the fact that we're willing to shut up, uh, show up, 
<laughs> and shut, shut up, up too. And shut up too if the case calls for it. <laughs> you know, but just by virtue of the fact that we're willing to show up, that alone can be on some level therapeutic. That these folks know that they're not alone. Someone's trying to help, maybe not in the most graceful way, but you know, somebody's there and they're trying to help. And if you can convey that to the individual, they're going to forgive almost any faux pas that you make. What a powerful story, Bill. Very hard to follow. You want to try to do that, Kara? Yeah, I really like that description, the shut up, but you're showing up. Because I think that's almost illustrating some of the times what was most important. And if you think you're going to save someone or rescue them you know, from a horrible trauma, I think that's the reality is that's not going to happen. But what you can do is be there. Concretely, one of my best skill sets from working in crisis is that I can write up notes in about two seconds flat. Flat. I'm very good at that. The other piece I think is I, I do feel confident working with a whole variety of different people and making that personal connection. I think that's a strength of mine that I that I really value. And I think that's part of what what I learned through crisis work. And I appreciate that, Kara, because that's uh, good to have. And it's a good skill that we all develop, I think, because we had 12 pages to fill out. What I've learned is that we need to offer relief in regards to the clients and what they're going through, even if it's a little bit. Because you know, when people are coming into the emergency room, they're very activated, even if they're in their own house and maybe they got a section, the police were called, what have you. I mean... What happens is that they don't know. They want some relief from what they're feeling or what's happening. And the biggest thing that I think that I do on a daily basis, even today in outpatient in my private practice, is when someone comes in, I, I do some retrospective stuff with them, but really not much because I, I want to know what's going on in the here and now in order for them to feel even just a little bit of relief when they're leaving. Because, you know, what happens is that, you know, you're coming to counseling, you're already stressed, probably, you don't know the stranger, you come in, you want, you're, you've been struggling with something for six weeks, six months, six years, depending on the person. And you want to be able to have someone who's going to say, it's okay, or give you some relief in regards to a little bit of the stress that you're having, you know, even if it's just a little tidbit and here's a little trick and here's something you can try. It, it really is what people really want out of counseling and they finally can breathe. They said, I can breathe. And that's so powerful. I think that's a really important thing to remember, Steve. You know, I think that too many times, and I, I see this, you know, with the newer clinicians because they don't know yet, they haven't experienced it yet. But people become so concerned with the paperwork. They become so concerned with the process that they lose the individual in it. You know, where's the individual? What, you know, what does this person need from me right now? The paperwork, the insurance, how, how I get paid. I'll figure that out later. That, that, that's, that's secondary. Obviously, you know, we do need to get paid, stuff like that. That's the only way we keep these services open. You know, so I mean, somebody's going to pay the rent, so to speak. But you know, that to me has always been secondary. You know, and I think you know that's what I try to convey to other people is: look, take care of the person first. You know, any kind of paperwork or anything like that that we, you know, maybe don't quite get right or screw up, we can fix it later. Help fix the person first. 
you know. Yeah, I really love that. I think that's why both of you are great clinicians. And I think you're a great supervisor, Bill. I'm still plugging that. <laughs> but I just what it was going to say, I think that, you know, as clinicians, there's not much that could surprise us or cause us to judge somebody because we've seen almost everything in lots of varieties. And we know that the pain that someone is in is usually, it's universal. No matter what someone's presenting with, the pain is where they're at. And to be mindful in the moment, to be present, to be there for them, those I think are our greatest strengths. And I think that's what's important to a person seeking help. Absolutely. And I agree fully with that. I uh, really like your interventions, both of you, what you talked about, about what you've learned. Just a reminder, we're listening to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. My name is Steve. Kara's sitting here with Bill. And I can't believe it's been an hour. You know, I said earlier we're going to wrap up, but I guess now I'm being very serious that we're going to have to wrap up this conversation. But I can't tell you how how important this conversation is for so many people who have been to the ER or clinicians or people who are in this field who are looking to maybe expand their horizons or learn more. I've certainly always enjoyed our work in crisis and obviously I've enjoyed my work with both of you. So maybe right now, maybe you can tell everyone how they can reach you. I'm going to start with Bill. Yeah, I, I started a private practice. It is the moment, you know, COVID kind of helped it along, but it's uh, primary primarily telehealth at the moment, but you can you know read me more about me or, or schedule an appointment if that's what you're interested in at Bill Dwinnells, and my last name is spelled D-W-I-N-N-E-L-L-S um, dot com. That's BillDwinnells.com. And happy to talk with anybody who wants to know more about crisis stuff, or if you want to come see me as a therapist uh, or any other way that I can help, just you let me know. And you mentioned your software a little earlier, but can you tell more people about the software that you created? Oh, yeah. I had a one of the things that we had developed. One of the problems that we have is that in some cases, there are so many clients that an emergency service team has to deal with simultaneously. Uh, and for a long time, this was tracked on paper or a whiteboard that we'd have to erase things from or things would get erased from. But that was just inefficient. So um, I had a, a friend of mine. We actually founded a company called 508 Tech that you can see at 508tech.com. And we developed a, an emergency service database that tracks all ongoing cases. It tracks previous cases. So we could actually look up and see exactly how many times a client was seen by the emergency services and what exactly happened during those encounters. Uh, it also has bed search functions so that I can do a bed search for any level of care and keep a track of it and keep a log of it so that I can you know, later pull up and say, yes, on this date, we did a bed search. We called these places. These were the responses. You know, And uh, it, it's really been um, very helpful. We've, we've been able to sell it to, I think, four or five of emergency teams already all of whom have reported that you know they love it and find it absolutely indispensable one team told me that um they were getting a new electronic record and one of the specifications they had for the company that was going to provide the electronic record is it had to function around my software or they weren't interested in it so we're very uh very proud of that 
And you absolutely should be proud of that. I'll definitely add it to the show notes, both your websites. How about you? Anything you want to plug, Kara? Yeah, I can't believe you guys used to use pen and paper and whiteboards. You know, as a millennial, wink, wink, I know all about software and all the updated stuff. Just joking. Yeah, so for my, like, like Steve had shared, my office is now within his office, you know, we're alongside each other. And that's Cara, C-A-R-A, Terrell, T-I-R-R-E-L-L, counseling.com. And so, you know, I, I think this is one more point is that, you know, the, when I started to think about my own practice, and I think Bill has done this too, and Steve has done this, the expertise that we've developed and the specialties that we developed are very unique. So some of the things I've, I've done work in are very unusual, you know, working with people who are dealing with hoarding disorders. You know, I worked with the elderly caregivers working with kids who might have Tourette's or PANS or PANDAS, you know, some things that are very specialized. I also see people 14 and over. I provide home visits to seniors in the area that, that we live in, close to my, my office. I am seeing people in person and accepting new clients. And I also do telehealth as well. And I certainly see people that are dealing with everyday stress, parenting difficulties, post-COVID or during COVID issues, uh, I think that's been a real challenge for a lot of teens and seniors becoming very isolated. And anxiety and depression are, are also very common right now. And those would definitely be people that, that I'd be happy to talk about and see if see, I could be a good fit for them. And you obviously know you have your spot here. I'm so happy that you're here, but just remember rent is late. <laughs> But in all seriousness, thank you so much for your time, both of you. It was such an awesome thing to reconnect. And one of the things that I already see in all of us is that we have such a passion for crisis work. And I hope everyone found this as useful and as helpful as it can be. And I certainly really like to rekindle my love with the crisis work. So thank you very much to both of you. We will see each other soon and let's go out to dinner, right? That's the time for dinner. Thank you, right. Steve. Thanks, Thanks Steve. This concludes episode 21. I want to thank Bill and Kara for this great conversation. Truly enjoyed it. You know, rekindled my love for something that I've done for many years and truly am very grateful for all the experiences that I've had there. So thank you to Bill and Kara for having that great conversation. If you have more, inf- you want more information on Kara and Bill, it'll be in the show notes. So hopefully you can look at that. Episode 22 will be about bereavement. Certainly will be something that happens, especially in the holidays where people think about the people they've lost and things like that. So definitely will be apropos moment for a whole lot of people. So I do hope you listen to it. Just a reminder that you can like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. And don't forget to even leave a comment for me and or a review, which is even better. And just for information, this is for educational purposes and does not constitute counseling. Please see a professional if you need to see one. So I will see you on episode 22.